0: And uh, so, Lord, as we look at Solomon building the temple, we pray that you would help us to understand your word, understand the principles you are teaching us through your word, and um, that we might glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're on lesson number five of the winter quarter title of this lesson is Solomon Builds the Temple. The scriptures covered are 1 Kings chapters 5 through 7 and 2 Chronicles chapter 2 through 5 verse 1. So we're going to start off with Solomon. This is uh, letter A. Solomon orders the building materials and that's first Kings chapter five verses one through six. okay, thank you, yeah, so um <clears throat> Hiram, king of Tyre, was David's friend, a pagan king. He was David's friend, and uh, we know that from second Samuel. And this is verses uh, chapter five and verse eleven. It says, "Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David." So Hiram sent workers to Jerusalem for David to build a house. So he was uh, a good ally, and Hiram was the king of Phoenicia. He reigned from nine seventy eight to 944 BC it's 34 years and he officially recognized the transfer of power to Solomon immediately you know much like uh, president truman recognized israel immediately when after they were recognized by the united nations it's the same sort of thing so then look at verses 2 through 4 Solomon sent word to Hiram saying, you know that David, my father, was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the wars which surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. It's interesting that word adversary in the Hebrew is Satan. Satan means adversary. Yeah, I looked at it in the Hebrew just to see if there was any interesting stuff. That was interesting. So, um, but Solomon spoke to Hiram as though he were a believer here, didn't he? What do you think about talking to unbelievers as though they're believers? Yeah, I think it actually it's uh, it's can be part of the way we witness, because part of our witness is what happens in our life. As we follow the Lord, supernatural things happen in our life, and we identify those things as being from God. And I think that's what he was doing here. You know, you know he gave the reason why his father was not to build the temples, because God told him so, because of all his killing, and that the Lord wanted him to do it, and that it was the Lord that gave him rest on every side. So yeah, I you know I think when when things happen because we know when the Lord is doing things in our lives, and if we express that to non-believers, that's a uh, one way of evangelizing. So it, it's all you know we always have to tell them the requirement for salvation. You know, believe in Jesus. You'll be saved. Um, But this is a good way to to pique their interest. So verse 5, Solomon, behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. So he intends to do this. Is, Is it a good bet that he'll be able to succeed? He intends to build a house for the name of the Lord. It's a real good bet. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a sure thing, really, right? Because the Lord is the one who told him to do it. So, 2nd Samuel 7, 12 and 13, this is the Davidic covenant. This is Nathan speaking to David. He says, "When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the Lord had already told David that his descendant, his son, would build the house, the temple. So that is a very good bet for Solomon to intend to do that. So he knew it was God's will. So how about us? Are there things that we can want that are a sure thing? Salvation. Yeah, if we want salvation, the Lord will never say no. He will never say no. That is one prayer that the of the unbeliever that the Lord will answer yes. Every time. So... First John five fourteen says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's what Solomon did here. So if we pray something that is God's will, that is a sure thing. Now, when you're praying for salvation for people, and I don't understand how this works, their will enters into that. Their own will enters into that. They have the, the Lord has given people the ability to reject him. Um, but, you know, I've heard stories like George Mueller would pray for the salvation of people he knew. He prayed for his whole life. He passed away. They were saved after he died. Stuff like that. You know. And we have somebody in our, you know, we use this example all the time of Julia, who prayed all her life for her grandson to be saved. And when he was an old, decrepit man, he was saved. Um, So, but, you know, the, uh, the will of the individual does enter into that. But if you, you know, praying for salvation for people is very powerful. And what other things should we pray for that we know are God's will? Is there anything, any things that we know are God's will for us? about a relationship between the sexes. What is God's will in that? Sexual purity. That is God's will. That is First Thessalonians 4 and verse 3. It is God's will uh, for you to have no immorality in your life. Another one that is God's will is to be thankful in how many circumstances? Twenty percent of the circumstances? No, one hundred percent of your circumstances. That is God's will to be thankful in all circumstances, and that's First Thessalonians five eighteen. And then the salvation of people—we've talked about, of course, because the Lord—that's why He waits so long. And um, I can't remember if that's First or Second Peter, but. You know, the Lord waits so long, he says, because he desires all to repent and come to a knowledge of salvation. That's a paraphrase. Um, <clears throat> so praying for people to be saved um, is the Lord's will also. So then verse 6, now therefore command... This is Solomon talking to Hiram now, command that they cut for me cedars from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will give you wages for your servants according to all that you say, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. So Solomon was you know putting in an order really, for the building materials for the cedars of Lebanon, which were very high quality timber very aromatic yes yeah so Solomon put in his order for the timber with Hiram king of Tyre and uh, anything else about that Do you want to comment okay so we're going to section B then the temple materials are delivered and that is first Kings chapter five verses 7 through twelve okay thank you so it's interesting in verse seven, Hiram, who we know is a pagan, talks like a believer, doesn't he? I won't say that. There is not evidence that he is. There is no evidence that he is, and he's a, you know, a king from a, a pagan nation. Um, and also, of course, this was years later. His descendant Ithbal. This is the time of King Ahab had a daughter named Jezebel who trashed the northern kingdom, you know, by marrying Ahab. So I, let's say, I am 98% sure (laughs) that Hiram was an unbeliever, but he was a friend. He was a friend of David, and he was a friend of Solomon. So he spoke like a believer. And I don't think he was a believer, but this is very common in diplomacy. And uh, you know, our own President George W. Bush, an earlier president after 9/11, would go to a mosque. He would take off his shoes. He would do Muslim types of things. We know he's a Christian because he was being diplomatic. Okay, I think that's what is going on here. So the Quarterly had a question I thought was interesting. It said, is it appropriate for Christians to ask non-Christians for help in ministry projects? Is it appropriate to ask a non-Christian to help in a ministry project? You know, I think it's done in commercial activities all the time. For example, we had someone tear down our little house out there. Did we ask if they were a believer? No. Yes, can you tear this down? That's all, you know. And uh, so for those types of things, commercial activities, then yes. Um, And this is one of those things. This is not a spiritual thing. It says, we need your your timber. It's a commercial transaction. Um, And I think in that sense that yes, you know, elicit the help of non-believers. Where do you need to avoid non-believers? How do you make the distinction? With your message, right? With your message. So Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 talks about separation, separating. First Corinthians 5 verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even eat with such a one. So he's talking about separation there within the church with those who are carnal. They're saved, maybe saved, but they're acting immorally. You should separate. It's appropriate to separate from them. Uh, In Jude, which was Dane's first book he preached, um, it talks about false teachers, people who come in and they have a false doctrine. Okay? And you are to separate from them. Okay, and this is where we need to be careful with unbelievers. So do we associate in ministry projects with Mormons, for example? No, because they teach a false gospel. They teach that people themselves can become gods with their own planet. They teach that Jesus and Satan were spirit brothers. You know, they have all sorts of false teaching. With the Jehovah's Witnesses, do we partner? No. No. They teach that Jesus was a created being. And all of these other places teach that salvation is by works instead of by faith. (coughs) Do we partner with Catholics? No. No, we should not. Yeah, there are believers in the Catholic Church, but the Catholic way of salvation is not by faith alone. The Catholic way of salvation is faith plus works. The Catholics teach about purgatory um, which is not found in the Bible anywhere not in what we consider the canon it's found in the book of Maccabees and even in the book of Maccabees you really have to push it to say that purgatory exists and so they have false teachings so no we don't associate with the Catholics so yeah when we do, we do not want to partner with Um, and I, I would say even some, even many Protestant churches, we don't want to partner with, because many teach a lordship salvation, which is basically a Catholic view of salvation. You know, this is this teaching that if you do not persevere in good works to the end of your life, you were never a Christian. That is a false gospel. And Paul said that those who teach a false gospel... Are cursed. So you know, I I went around earlier when Jim was going to retire, and I went to some churches to see you know what are these like. And in our area, there are ones like that. A lot of them are like that. You know, it is very. I think it's very very important to teach that your salvation from you know the penalty of sin, hell. Is just belief, period. Otherwise, you mess it up. So, anyway, verses uh, 8 and 9. So, Hiram sent word to Solomon, saying, I've heard the message which you have sent me. I will do what you desire. So, they're entering into a contract here, right? Concerning the cedar and cypress timber, my servants, and he tells them how it will be delivered. So, they'll bring them down from Lebanon to the sea they'll make them into rafts, they'll float them down the coast to Joppa, where they'll be broken up and then carried to the interior, to Jerusalem. So they have the transport worked out. And uh, what Hiram was going to get out of it was food for his household. So this is a barter arrangement, basically unlimited timber, for a yearly allotment of grain and oil. And also we learned from the parallel passage in Second Chronicles that there was a single payment to the workers. And uh, the yearly payment was 125,000 bushels of grain and 115,000 gallons of oil. So it was a lot. And then the uh, single payment for the workers was 125,000 bushels of barley. You know, this is translating these cores into things we can understand. 125,000 bushels of barley, 125,000 bushels of flour, 115,000 gallons of wine, and 115,000 gallons of oil. And then, Verse 12, they made a covenant to seal the contract. The two of them made a covenant. So Solomon is entering into this barter arrangement with the king of Phoenicia. You know, this is uh, principles that we can learn from this or fair business dealings. You want to have fair dis- business dealings. Hiram thought it was fair. Solomon thought it was fair. That's capitalism, right? That is the basis of capitalism. You agree to trade something for a certain price. And it works out, you know? Socialism goes directly against that and turns people into slaves. Just an aside on my part. So I think a principle that we can apply that we can learn from this is like Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, non-believers too, everybody. We want to be at peace with them, we enter into business transactions with them. Uh, we want to be honest and uh, be true to our word. Always be true to our word. Okay, so... Section C, this is what we're talking about with the forced labor. Solomon recruits builders. So that's First Kings 5, 13 through 18, and I will read that one. <clears throat> now King Solomon levied forced laborers from all Israel, and the forced laborers numbered 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month, in relays. They were in Lebanon a month and two months at home. And Adoniram was over the forced laborers. Now Solomon had seventy thousand transporters and eighty thousand hewers of stone in the mountains, besides Solomon's three thousand three hundred chief deputies who were over the project and who ruled over the people who were doing the work. Then the king commanded, and they quarried great stones, costly stones, to lay the foundation of the house with cut stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the Gebelites cut them and prepared the timbers and the stones to build the house. Okay, so I think you're right, uh, Vicki. These are, were apparently forced laborers who were Israelites. Do we have a parallel today for such a thing? We used to, I don't know if, you know. It's the draft, Right. The, it's, it's the draft. They, they were being drafted. So these Israelites were being drafted and they were to spend one month in Lebanon cutting timber and then two months at home. So four months of the year, they would go to Lebanon and uh, eight months of the year, they would come home. And they only had to go up there for a month at a time. And this was forced. And Adoniram was mentioned again as the in charge of the forced labor. So it mentions these 30,000, which they appear to be Israelites, but then there are 70,000 transporters and 80,000 hewers of stone. And we learn from the parallel passage in Chronicles that these were foreigners in the land. And those are the ones we talked about earlier that, um, you know, they never killed. When they conquered the land, so I'm sure. Do you think that this was popular? This policy of King Solomon's to conscript Israelites to go to Lebanon and cut timber. Yeah, I, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that's very insightful. You know, there's always a split in opinion. You know, we see that in our day, in great. You know, all over the place. The Israelites, in later years, did not like this, and uh, when Solomon died and his son, King Rehoboam, came to power, they approached him and said, I can't remember what they said, let me find it, yeah, this is First Kings chapter 12, verse 4, your father, Solomon, made our yoke hard, Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. They must be referring to this sort of thing. Conscription for labor, you know. Um, And, well, we'll learn, um, spoiler alert, Rehoboam said, no, I'm going to make it even harder on you. And that's what split the kingdom. So, yeah, they didn't like that. But this is exactly what God told through Samuel would happen when they asked for a king. You know, you ask for a king, this is what you get. Let me just read that to you real quick. This is from 1 Samuel 11 through 15. Samuel said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons... And place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing, and to reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, and your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. That's favoritism, isn't it? We see that all the time today. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. That's the taxes. And that's what kings do. Yeah, I already mentioned this, that the 70,000 and the 80,000, and also some of the overseers were foreigners. And we find that out in the Chronicle. Chronicles passage, section D. The temple is constructed. First Kings six one through thirteen. Anybody want to try that one? Can okay, you? Thank you, sir. All right. So look at verse one. Verse one is interesting. Now it came about in the four hundred and eightieth year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. That is a timestamp. That is a timestamp. Now, all through the Old Testament, there are these timestamps. You know, even in Genesis, for example, the Genesis account gives the exact day that the flood started, that the rain started. It gives the exact day to the day when it stopped and things like that. And if you notice these timestamps are, you know, most of the Bible is written about into Israel. And um, Israel has all these timestamps and timing things that we have the, prophecy of Daniel, 70 week prophecy. and so the first century Israelites should have known they could have known to the day when Jesus would present himself as their Messiah, which was when he came on Palm Sunday. they could have known that if they'd paid attention. Now in the church, the scripture to the church <clears throat> is the uh, you know it's described in the Acts, uh, the instructions to the church are the epistles. There are no timestamps anywhere. That's interesting, you know? And that is because of the doctrine of imminence, the doctrine of imminence. The Lord never told us when he was coming for us in the rapture, he tells us to be ready. Paul thought it would, he would come in the rapture. During his life, he didn't come, but he could have come. See, and so when people try to predict when the Lord is coming, they forget this. And I, you know, I have been drawn into that myself, also timing things. But there is in the church, there is no timestamp, we don't know when he's coming. Um, you know, he's waited over 2,000 years now, but. What I wanted to talk about here, this timestamp is very important because this helps us to identify, and this is one of your handouts, on the age of the earth. The age of the earth. So this is a this is a matter of faith. The faith of the secular humanist will tell you that the age of the earth is billions of years old how do they know that? They don't know that, you know? Yeah, it's their interpretation of the layers. Right. So, and I grew up an evolutionist, fully believing that. But if you take verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, it tells you the month that Solomon began his temple, and it also gives you the time in relation to the Exodus. Okay, it was 480 years before that the Israelites came out of Egypt. And so, you know, through other historical records, we have the dates of the Solomonic reign, which was 971 to 931 B.C. Solomon rebuilt the temple in 966. He started the rebuilding B.C., 480 years back for the Exodus date places that at 1,446 B.C. for the Exodus date. Now, in Exodus 12 and verse 40, we are told that it was 430 years earlier that Jacob migrated into Egypt because of the famine to be with Joseph. That places it at 1,876 B.C. Jacob's migration to Egypt. Then, if you use the genealogies of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, these genealogies are complete. There are not gaps. And the reason I say that is because these genealogies are unique in that they give the age of the father At the birth of what they call the seed son. The seed son, I don't think necessarily is the first son. The seed son is the son of the line of the Messiah. So they'll tell for example, Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. And then they give how long he lived after that. Say he had other sons and daughters and he died. And so you can follow that all along, and that can only work if it's a complete genealogy. Another argument for Genesis 5 being a complete genealogy is in Jude, where Jude says that Enoch was seventh from Adam. If you go back and count the generations from Enoch, Genesis chapter 5, to Adam, it's seven generations. So that's complete genealogy, and the genealogy in Chapter 11 is the same. Okay, so that means that our Earth was created around 6,000 years ago. Okay? So um, now get up in a college biology class. And say that, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Around six thousand years ago, you know, now uh, there was a archbishop. He was an Irish archbishop named James Usher, who published. It was a book. He he wrote a book about this about timing. And he went into Egyptian literature and Babylonian literature as as well as the biblical literature, and he came up with a date of creation of 4004 B.C. Now, this has to be taken on faith, doesn't it? But, this explains things in my view. I mean, you need less faith to believe this than you do to believe the evolutionist theory, because the evolutionists also require that you suspend one of our best-known physical laws for it to work, and that's the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything tends toward disorder. They say no. Inanimate things became living. You know, and I'm... (laughs) This is a, a very important verse for young earth, creationism right here young earth creationism and uh, you know the the church really messed up bad after what was it 1859 I think 1859 was the publication of Darwin's origins and the church freaked out. they freaked out and they began to rewrite the Bible and that's where we got the gap theory. That's where we got the day-age theory, because they're trying to make the Bible, you know, fit, match with what they thought was science. Until 1961, and there were two people, I don't know if we have the book in our library, but it's called The Genesis Flood, a guy named Henry Morris, and he was a uh, scientist. He was a he was like an engineer or something in academia, and uh, a Hebrew scholar named John Whitcomb, and they wrote The Genesis Flood, and they said, no, we're going to take the Bible at its word, and we're going to investigate these props that the evolutionists have, for example, car- carbon dating. Carbon dating is not accurate, terribly inaccurate. and. Um, We know that, you know, I mean, we have the advantage of the Mount St. Helens eruption. So people carbon dated the Mount St. Helens eruption and the rocks were like, you know, millions of years old. They dated them at millions of years old when they were, you know, last, you know, a few months ago. (laughs) And so it doesn't work, you know. And so it was out of their work in 1961 that came the creationist movement which is ongoing today. So I thought that, you know, since Dane is going through Genesis, and the other other handout that I gave you was about the dates, the lives of the antediluvian patriarchs. So you see the year of the flood, and look at Methuselah. Methuselah was the longest living man, He was the son of Enoch. Enoch was the one who was raptured. Methuselah died in the year of the flood. And his name, the Hebrew word for death is meweth. His name means when he dies, judgment. He died in the year of the flood. Is that, that gives me goosebumps. (laughs) That gives me goosebumps. But look here, um, So Shem, you know, Shem was still alive when Abraham was living. And uh, he actually lived longer than Abraham did. Shem. That's Noah's son. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So uh, the earth is young. I couldn't resist that date stamp there. So, I mean, the nation of Israel has date, date stamps. It has timing. Things and the timing that we are waiting for now for the Lord to push the button on is the signing of the treaty between the Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. When that happens, He will push the button again, seven years will elapse, and that seven years will be the tribulation period. But before that, Jesus will come for us, and that is the pre tribulation rapture of the church, which is un timed. It is not timed. Yeah. Not for the church age, which I understand it. I understand why he did it. You know, if you're not sure when, when he's coming, that's a motivation that, yeah, that's a motivation for purity and a motivation for evangelism. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So verse two, the temple was twice as large as the dimensions of the tabernacle. In verse 7, the stones were cut and shaped at the quarry in order to keep the building site quiet. We wanted to keep the building site quiet out of reverence for the Lord. And we learn in verse 8 that it was three stories tall. The Holy of Holies was a 30-foot cube. So that completes with the quarterly went over let me just give you the overview of the parts that skipped that's first kings 614 to through chapter 7 and also second chronicles chapter 2 through 5 verse 1 basically it's a description of the details of the temple the measurements as i said it's two times as big as the tabernacle its building materials Almost everything in the temple was overlaid with gold. It was gold. Everything was gold. And the Holy of Holies were two large cherubim, which were standing with wings outstretched. They touched each other, and they touched the walls of the Holy of Holies. And then it talks about Solomon's palace being built over 13 years. The temple was built over seven years, so the whole project together was 20 years. And uh, they got a master craftsman from Hiram of Tyre, whose name also was Hiram. And his father was from Tyre, his mother from Dan. And you know, that kind of parallels Exodus 31 1 through 5. Bezalel built the tabernacle in the wilderness. Bezalel was, uh, the Spirit of God came upon him to do that. But this Hiram, Was a master craftsman from, you know, I don't know if he was a believer or not, Hiram, Um, but he was sent by King Hiram to uh, oversee the project. And that is the end.